Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and for anyone else who happens to love the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McMinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. We're both preachers who love the Old Testament and we're PhD students at Emory University in the Old Testament program, which means both that we love the OT and are crazy enough to try and get our PhDs in it. Right. There's lots of people smart enough to get a PhD, but only a select few of us who are dumb enough to actually do it. Now, if you have been listening to our weekly smart car mini episodes, just to continue the metaphor, you'll be happy to hear that this week we have a full stretch limo of an episode, and we've invited an expert exegete to join us for our deep dive into Psalm 30. Yes, we are so pleased to have Dr. Stephen Reed with us today. Dr. Reed is a professor of Christian scriptures at George W. Truett Theological Seminary of Baylor University. And yes, that is the Baylor of the Lady Bears who just won the NCAA tournament. Sikkim Bears. Hey, he also earned his PhD at Emory University a number of years back, so he's a winner all the way around. (laughs) Dr. Reed is ordained in the Church of the Brethren, and you can find his preaching tips and exegetical work on workingpreacher.org. His areas of expertise include the Psalms, apocalyptic literature, especially Daniel, and black biblical hermeneutics. If you'd like to know some more about his work, check out his book, Listening In, A Multicultural Reading of the Psalms, published by Abington, and we'll put a link to that on our website. Stephen Reed, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. Now, first and most important, uh, how was it to attend the Lady Bears final game, and how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling rested. It was, <laughs> it was quite a roller coaster. And your uh, listeners may want to know that uh, Chloe Jackson, who scored the winning uh, points, is a seminarian. Oh, no kidding. Yes. And so on her way to the WNBA, she went through a year of uh, seminary training. Oh, that's so cool. Excellent. Can I ask... Uh... Steve, you've done quite a bit of work in the Psalms and in Hebrew poetry in general. Can you tell us just kind of how did you get into that? What drew you to that area? And what is it that you really love most about Hebrew poetry? Well, um, I had written a small book on uh, black biblical hermeneutics, and I was sort of casting about for what to do next. When you think about how we live faithfully, Part of that is trying to pick up the rhythms and the blues of life. Mm. And I thought if we could look at the rhythms and blues of the Psalms and connect it to the rhythm and blues of our lives, then that might be an interesting conversation. Oh, man, that is such a great title for a sermon series on the Psalms, the rhythm and blues of life. That's fantastic. You've been at this, too, this whole academic, scholar, pastor thing for, is it since 1981? Is that correct? Since 81. Since 81. I'm just curious to know, what has it been like for you to be a scholar, and what have you seen change in biblical studies since then? Well, in biblical studies, um, one of the things that has changed since 1981 is in 1981, uh, Church life was substantially more stable than it is mm-hmm. in uh, 2019. Denominations were celebrating. United Methodists were united. Uh, mm. Presbyterians were thriving. And church life was one of the sort of core institutions in uh, American life. In 2019, 
church life is nowhere near as central to uh, American institutions. Our denominations are fractured. Uh, there's a much more subversive faith going on today mm -hmm. because Christendom has really fallen apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, in some ways, that that's the good news of the end of Christendom. Yeah, that's kind of what I was just thinking. Please say some more. Yeah. yeah. One of the challenges with the Christendom model is you start thinking of your core collaborators as the powerful in society. Yeah. Once you're no longer the religious authenticators for power and authority, now you get to think theologically, but not necessarily connected mm -hmm. to the forces of power and the institutions of power. Yeah, I can, and I can see that connecting to the psalm that we're going to talk about a little bit today, too. So it's a great entree into it. Well, before we begin, uh, let me say a quick word of prayer to help us and our listeners dive into the scripture. Let us pray. Faithful God, you promise to turn our mourning into dancing. And yet you also promise that there will be suffering, but that as we walk through those valleys, your rod and your staff will always comfort and lead us. Lead us now into this text and into what you are calling us to preach to our communities. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Steve, could you would you read the psalm for us so we can kind of hear it out loud? Okay. I'm reading um, NRSV Psalm 30, a song, a song at the dedication of the temple of David. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those who had gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you God's faithful ones. Give thanks to God's holy name, for God's anger is but for a moment, and God's favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you have established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face and I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And so my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. You know, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm looking at that superscription. Is there anything that we can say about um, what's going on in this psalm as a whole or, or how it, where it might be set? 
Well, you know, you asked what has changed since 1981. One of the things that has changed is how we work with superscriptions. Mm. Superscriptions came into fashion and went out of fashion. Mm. For many years, Psalms readers would just ignore the superscriptions. Then folks like Brother Childs and Gerald Wilson said, if you track the superscriptions, you can see the development of the Psalter. Mm -hmm. More recently, you have David Wilgren and others who say, if you look at Qumran, sometimes the superscriptions we have in the Masoretic text, which is the basis for our NRSV and most of our translations, are different when you look at the Qumran text. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, folks are much more cautious about them. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. uh, however, let, let's just sort of look at this particular superscription. It tells us it's a psalm. We sort of knew that. <laughs> uh, but when it says it's a song at the dedication of the temple, this helps us put the psalm in some sort of historical perspective. But we want to do that with a sort of open hand. Mm. That is to say that this social and historical location happens not just once, but could happen multiple times. For instance, it says, song at the dedication of the temple. Well, you have a dedication of the temple described in Kings, and you have a dedication of the temple described in Ezra Nehemiah. That's right. Yep. Then you have a dedication of the temple, which gives us uh, really the, the Hanukkah festival. And in each of these cases, this psalm and its texture really sort of fits a community that has been sort of pulled apart and tried, and now they're trying to come together in a location of confession and a location of solidarity. So the superscription is the editor's way of trying to give you clues on how to read the psalm. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. I took a class on Ezra Nehemiah, I wrote a paper on it, completely forgot that there's a dedication of the temple in Ezra Nehemiah. So I'm so glad you brought that up. What do you make of the fact that this psalm is only briefly a communal psalm, which is interesting? It's on the majority written from a first person perspective I, me. One of the things that continually surprises me about the psalms is the use of the first person singular. Mm. Seldom in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, do you get much first person. Mm. Right. We live in a pretty enlightenment culture where it's I, me, I, me. And even People Magazine has been replaced by Us Magazine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but in, in the biblical text, I is rarely used. But I think here it's doing something liturgically. Mm. When, we, when we use the first person, then we we really start to take on the voice of the text itself. Mm. Rolf Jacobson has an article where he describes the Psalms as prayers that help us find our own prayers. Mm. Yeah. And so by using the first person, the psalmist prays what many of us have experienced, and it also starts to shape and form us. And mm -hmm. so you can see how this psalm is going to really shape its speakers as they read it, or probably not just read it, but as they memorize it. Mm -hmm. I, I love that idea of being shaped, especially at um, 
milestone moments in our life, if we're kind of uh, making an analogy to the dedication of the temple as a milestone moment, uh, that these words and this way of talking to God is an appropriate way to do it at a milestone moment in our life. That's that's, that's neat. Right. Well, one of the things that I think uh, Walter Brueggemann really helped us when he talked about the importance of lament because of the way in which it encourages us to be authentic with God. Mm -hmm. Much of church life tells us God is powerful, God is strong, and so we need to be careful what we say in front of God as though God has no access right, yeah, to, exactly. to what we're really uh, feeling. <laughs> and so when the psalmist really makes rhetorical moves that we often make, Mm. Um, then it does give us permission to share with God our anguish. Mm. Yeah, I'm reminded, I have two little kids, and I'm rem reminded of when they were even smaller, and they would cover their eyes and think, I can't see them because they can't yes. see me. <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of a similar idea, right? God can't yes. hear me because I'm not saying it out loud or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me that this first person language would be a kind of liturgical move. It's a... Uh, a, a blending of the I and the we in the moment of uh, performing this together. That's right. Um, in uh, Deuteronomy 26, a wandering Aramean yeah. was my ancestor. Was my ancestor, yeah. And so they're going to make that sort of first-person move. Yeah, I think to the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. That's yeah. right. Can I ask one more sort of big-picture question about this, this psalm? I just wonder... Um, if we want to say something about its a genre within the Psalms, uh, I mean, this it has a sort of Thanksgiving theme. Does that sort of mark it out as a special type of psalm among the Psalms? Well, as I looked at this psalm, one of the things that that's fascinating is it is uh, a Thanksgiving and a lament. Uh, Rolf Jacobson, in his commentary, also talks about it as a hymn. It blends in a number of literary genres into one sort of uh, one sort of piece. But I think one of the things we want to make sure we catch and preachers catch is that the word for praise is very similar to the word for confess. Mm. And right. uh, a good bit of what's going on in this um, psalm is it praises God. It confesses something about the nature of God in the nature of the relationship between God and human beings. And so we, we want to get at the Thanksgiving piece, but also always connect Thanksgiving to what it says about the construction of the world. Mm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? What do you mean exactly about the construction of the world? The Thanksgiving says that the world is constructed in a particular way with the power of God, playing itself out in the process and the end of uh, the creation. Mm. And so when we praise something, we are also saying something about the way we perceive the world going on. Nice. And yeah. so when someone says they praise God, they're really making a, a pretty strong theological statement that God is active in the world. Nice. And that there's something more than just inertia pushing on history. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the reasons I remember doing this as a I, so I've been a church dork for a long time. My dad's a pastor. So like this was my 
this was my my first love was the church just about. Um, and I remember being a, a littler kid, probably elementary school, and deciding that I wasn't going to say I wasn't going to treat thank God as taking God's name in vain, because I thought, no, it's it's OK to say, oh, thank God about something if I'm really thanking God for it and making that sort of claim you know, about, I mean, I obviously was not thinking at that young age about making a claim about the construction of the world, but, um, <laughs> I think it's, it's, uh, it's just kind of a similar along that continuum of, of when we say that phrase, you know, it can be a throwaway, which is kind of okay too, because every time we say it, we're establishing what we believe about the construction of the world. That's right. Yeah. What do we want to say about maybe those, those first few verses there? Did not let my foes rejoice over me. The laments often have just a thin layer before you get at the conflict between the psalmist and some other community. Many of us, especially growing up, know what it's like to have our foes rejoice over us. Mm-hmm. And part of what uh, is going on in this, in this opening part of the psalm is to make clear that God has upheld the honor of the psalmist. In an honor-shame culture, which I think Psalm 30 assumes, the psalmist is praising God and confessing that God is the one who maintains the honor of those who are in relationship with God. That uh, phrase stood out to me too, and one of the reasons is that it comes around again, in Hebrew at least, in uh, what is verse 11 in English, where it it, uh, it says, I'm jumping around here, you have turned my morning into dancing, you've taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. And that word joy, simcha, is the same word there that you did not let my foes rejoice over me. So it kind of brackets almost the, the whole poem in that way of a reversal from the the um, gloating over by enemies to the joy that the the psalmist is filled with because God has come through. That's a great observation because it it really highlights the way the text invites a certain affect, a certain emotion. Mm-hmm. This isn't all in their head. Mm-hmm. There is a certain felt sense that goes with this text. And as, as you've pointed out, Tim, the enemies don't get to have it, and <laughs> the people of God do. Right. Yeah, and in fact, they're given it as a gift. It's almost like orthoaffect. If you're thinking like orthodoxy, mm-hmm. orthopraxy, you get orthoaffect here, but it's something that is given to you from God. Well, that's, I'll have to remember that. Oh, steal it. Please, steal oh, away. Yeah. I'd, be, <laughs> I'd be honored. I'd be so honored. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. One of the things that I'm always thinking about in, in verse 3 is this uh, this word nefesh in Hebrew. I, this is like one of my pet projects. It's the word that— I knew it, you were going to go there. I know. I, get, I go there all the time, every time. I think my whole goal in this podcast is just to find somebody who can define it for me in a way that then I'll steal. So we'll see if that happens today. Deal? Okay. <laughs> all right. So it's the word, uh, dear listeners, that— we usually translate as soul or usually gets translated as soul. Um, the word is nefesh. It kind of, it kind of uh, means this throaty area, this guttural throaty area of the human being. Um, but I'm always curious. So here we go, Steve. How would you translate that word? 
Uh, generally, I don't translate the word. Oh, I like that. All right. All right. Go on. Well, one of the things I find is um, in preaching and teaching, sometimes words don't translate. It's better for you to leave them untranslated and people say, oh, what is that? Now we get to have a conversation. Nice. If you translate it soul, then people will think they know what you're talking about. And right. they really have no idea what you're talking about. They preach, exactly. Uh, often uh, we think of soul as some sort of out-of-body essence, which I think may have had some role in Greco-Roman era, but is probably not what's going on here. Hans-Walter Wolf in his Anthropology of the Old Testament, which isn't much of an anthropology, more a series of word studies, but he pointed out what, what you were saying, Rachel, that nephish is from the, the throat. And I always tell my students, there's nothing ethereal about your food pipe. <laughs> uh, Wolf goes on to say, uh, one of the ways to think about this is the appetites that give life an identity. Mm. For instance, if you're uh, a Texan, you may have identity around beef and brisket and barbecue. The nephish is that set of appetites that shape your identity. Mm. And so if we think of nephish as the things that shape us and shape our identity and those things that we desire, then this context in a lament and a thanksgiving makes pretty good sense because the psalmist is making the case that there is an appetite for God mm. that shapes the identity and the very being of the psalmist. Mm. So I think if you translated soul, things get, get difficult. Uh, you could translate it something like uh, living appetites mm. or yearn yearnings might be Rachel, have you thought about yearnings? I haven't. And this, I'm so struck by the physicality of it. Even this idea of you brought my nephesh up from Sheol. So mm -hmm. you brought my, you know, there's, there's something so physical about that, that it's just really hard to capture in any one English word. Yeah. Yeah. If you wanted a, a physical image of it, you could almost picture God grasping somebody by the scruff of the neck exactly. and yanking them up out of the pit. Yeah, I mean, yes. I think yes. I think there's, I, I think we this is my so this is my pet rant that I think we we lose some of the poetic image when we translate nefesh so quickly to soul because often there's something going on with swallowing or breathing or yeah grabbing by the scrap of the neck that then we just it just gets lost so yeah, yeah and of course it has it has all those other valences too and I like the sort of um, desires. Yeah. nuance to it especially in the way that 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 theme of um the desire for god and the ability of the person to voice praise is um kind of included in in some sense of the motivation for why god does what god does in the psalm totally oh, that's a great connection the voice and the appetite together yeah yeah you know, speaking of voice, uh, one other thing that struck me in this little section here was, uh, I guess it's in verse two in English, where it says that I, I called out to you for help. 
And I I was just struck by uh, we we try to throw in as much of the little linguistic stuff in here as we can, and I was just struck by the particular Hebrew word that was used there. Hebrew has so many different words for um, sort of vocalizations of need, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this one in particular is shiva, mm-hmm. which which is the root that's related to salvation. You know, it's the same mm-hmm. word that we get the names Joshua and Jesus mm-hmm. for that matter. Uh, and so it really is here a, a vocalization of a need for saving, for rescue. Yes. And I just I just love that little nuance in the particular word for calling out here that's used. Yeah. So Tim, how how would you translate it differently? Because cry out doesn't doesn't get get at that. I think the the English translations that I've seen usually have a phrase there, calling out for help, ah, or okay. um, uh, my my plea for rescue or something like that. Yeah, that would maybe get at some of that. Yeah, I think that'd be better. Mm-hmm. And of course, the rescue takes a physical form, at least in the the word that's used, healing, right? Now, healing's one of the places where I would advise the preacher to just sort of hover. Yeah. Because often in uh, many of our modern cultures, we we have a lot of things laden onto illness Mm. and trauma that we never explicate. And so healing lets us know about how illness and trauma also play themselves out in terms of social interaction. Hmm. And so when uh, the language of God's healing also means the, the language of God's restoration of the psalmist to a social interaction that is a more functional and thriving interaction. If, if you're a, a cancer survivor, one of the things you'll notice is people treat you differently when you tell them you're a cancer survivor. Hmm. Um, so healing is not just uh, a physical thing, but it is an expression of uh, power and expression of flourishing uh, that can often in the preaching and teaching of this psalm just get overlooked. Yeah, and I, I think too, of uh, especially considering the next verse, verse 3, which talks about being brought up from Sheol, mm-hmm. which, you know, Sheol, this pit, this this kind of place that's conceptualized as down and below and dark, and that's a lot of how mental illness is described as well. Um, so to, to, yeah, to really, like you said, you use that great word to hover there and really kind of let those couple of verses play out um, the physical, the, the mental, emotional, and the social. You could get a really rich picture just from those couple of verses. Yes. Well, we should move our conversation forward here for the sake of time into the next section uh, where we do have that turn towards the explicitly communal. Yeah, and it's 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 an interesting one, too, because it's uh, it's a it's a pretty quick shift. Um, it's thanking Lord for salvation and then a sh- shift directly outward to the community um, to sing to God and uh, praise his holy name. Although as 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 we both noticed, the Hebrew doesn't exactly say praise his holy name, does it? Well, it says uh, it, the the Hebrew, if you were going to translate it rather woodenly, would say something like praise for the memorial of his holiness 
or yeah. of God's holiness, something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have any idea what's going on with that particular idiom? Well, memorial is an interesting way of getting at that because here you're, you're really pointing to one of the things that's happened in psalm studies and in, in biblical studies in general in the last uh, 15 years, an emphasis on the role of memory. Yeah. Hmm. And so uh, when we talk about presence, we're also talking about uh, memory. That would be something well worth pursuing in terms of how memory is going to play here and also in other passages. It may connect with your, your point, Tim, about uh, genre, because we've moved from the confessional lament in the previous section, now, as Rachel has pointed out, into an imperative. Rolf Jacobson talks about uh, the imperative as being one of the key elements of, uh, of the hymn which uh, really describes uh, the nature of God. And so uh, not only is the psalmist confessing, now the psalmist is leading the broader community into participating in this remembering Mm -hmm. of God's activity and has shifted us really from an individual remembering to a corporate remembering. Mm Mm-hmm from an individual trauma, and now this could be perceived as uh, a reshaping of what was probably a more corporate trauma. Mm. Yeah, and then we get into kind of the sticky verse 6 when we're talking about trauma and illness and wrath. Um, The, uh, you know, for his anger is but a moment, and... In his pleasure, there is life, or um, that's kind of my quick translation of it. But Mm -hmm. God's anger, what do you do with that? (laughs) Well, God's anger creates a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good for uh, church folks to know it's a problem. One of the things that often happens is we think of God as sort of a a clockmaker who uh, made the world, And then uh, it was Sunday afternoon, went off to the couch to watch football all afternoon and just sort of wait for human beings to do whatever they do till the end of the game. Hmm. Uh, That God has no has no wrath, has no joy, but it's just sort of a clockmaker. One of the things that this psalm gives us is it gives us a much more active and emotional God. But that then means we have to deal with the activity and the emotion of God. One of the things that often happens in a number of black churches is God's anger is then sort of morphed into disaster. And uh, some songs we even talk about hard times last only for a moment and joy comes in the morning. As part of the way churches often try to get around um, disaster and God being connected. But the psalmist wants to say the disaster and God's anger are connected. Now, um, this is where I would say the psalmist gets to make a choice. It's not necessarily a comfortable choice for us. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, but they they let us comment on it. They don't let us rewrite it. <laughs> and um, and if I were with a congregation, I would say we're not gonna we're not gonna solve this today. But it is important for congregations to understand that the psalm doesn't work if God doesn't work. Mm. If God cannot be really spoken to, if God cannot respond to the pathos of human beings crying out, then there's no reason for a lament. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't say, I'm hurt to people who really can't help you. Uh, and so the anger of God it, it becomes a, an important and yet troublesome thing about the, the doctrine of God that's going on in, uh, in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. I, I like what you, what you said about that, in part because I'm thinking of, um, I know only a very little bit, um, just enough to be dangerous, about working with victims of trauma um, and one of the things that, you know, as a pastor, you're told is um, one of the most important things to do is not to try to correct someone who is working through their trauma, um, mm-hmm. because one of the things that is most traumatizing about whatever they've experienced is being stripped of voice and being stripped of power so that what they say as they are conceptualizing their trauma um, needs to be affirmed and walked with instead of um pushed aside or corrected. Um, and I, I really like how that kind of, you lifted that up here about the song. Yes. Now, as I said, this does complicate things. My wife, Kathy, is uh, director of a domestic uh, abuse mm. uh, center. And one of the things that uh, you'll also get abusers saying, my anger is for just a moment, hmm. but my, my favor is long time. Yeah. So, so when we talk about God's anger, I, I don't want to trivialize it yeah. um, because it does have some of the same earmarks and rhetorics that you're going to get in much more dysfunctional anger. Yeah. But that's something that churches need to come to terms with because often congregations are in denial about anger. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wouldn't necessarily, if I were preaching a sermon or teaching a class on this, get too locked into a cul-de-sac, but it does become an opportunity for some consciousness raising of yeah. congregation. So let's bring it home. How does the psalm find its conclusion? Well, the psalm's going to take us back to transformation. And you might think of this like a, a good movie. A good movie can't have a happy ending if there's not been a catastrophe. Mm. It's, it's right. not a movie. Uh, and so you need something to have complicated the situation and to turn your mourning into joy somehow you you must take seriously mourning Mm. one of the challenges of the 21st century is we have trivialized mourning and we have trivialized joy so that people always pretend they're they're joyful because they have no sense of of loss. Or if you're an academic, you always pretend that you're mourning so that people think you're a very important person. Is that right? At least that's yeah. true for graduate students. Is that right? Yeah. For, okay, okay. <laughs> and in, in terms of preaching this passage, if you can't make this move, 
then the psalm doesn't work. Mm. However, Rachel, I think you're right. As as a as an academic, your temptation is not to be able to dance. Yeah. If you get too much in your own head, then you can't dance. Uh, I think there's a song that says, dance like no one's watching. Yeah, yeah. And this is a transformation that really moves from the sort of mournful process to the uh, joyful process. One of the things that might be helpful for folks preaching this is to have them remind the congregation what sackcloth is like Mm. and the feeling of sackcloth. Mm -hmm. And then to contrast that to the feeling of really nice silk. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, um, in that process of just changing clothes, mm. you start to feel a different sort of way. Mm. And your movement really opens up. But the preacher's got to be able to, in some sense, model this. Yeah. If the preacher can't get to joy, then they're really sort of stepping on the message of the passage. Yeah. I remember as a, a young preacher, um, I thought it was going to be really great to preach on Genesis 2. They were naked and unashamed. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I preached, I preached this sermon, and it was, it was a dud. And one of the people said, well, you preach, you should be unashamed, but you seem to be ashamed all the time you're doing the sermon. Oh, wow. And so since the transformation is from mourning to joy, you've got to sort of model in your own choreography, in your voice, that you've made that shift. Mm. Otherwise, the narrative of the psalm and the narrative of your presentation, they, they clash in a unhelpful way in your in your congregation says this is inauthentic yeah yeah that's that's such a great point especially because so often i think we think about sermons being so focused on the words we choose and the ideas that we are conveying and we lose the fact that sermons are always embodied in us in our bodies in our demeanors in our gestures and that's that's almost as big a part of the word that you say is that it's an embodied event. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think I just love that image too of putting on silk because when you think of somebody putting on like a really soft shirt, you know, what do you do? You're, you kind of, you shimmy your shoulders a little bit. Like, (laughs) like it's, it's just a little kind of natural dance that you do by putting on that really comfortable thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really sort of tactile uh, set of images there. And it's also uh, liturgical language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, the both the um, the mourning and the dancing are are liturgical elements. Then, of course, the the sackcloth, you know, the the change of wardrobe is is a change of of liturgical vestments, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it would be, you know, this is of course a, a preaching podcast, but. Wouldn't it be interesting and creative to see how churches might uh, play out this psalm in in the use of liturgy beyond just the, the sermon in, in uh, a, a change of vestments and uh, a getting up and dancing, that would be an interesting way to embody the physicality of mm-hmm. what's going on in these last verses. That's right. 
and and as we as we approach Holy Week, we we start to see some of that as mm-hmm. you as you um, move into the Good Friday, and then the Good Friday gives way to the colors of Easter. Mm-hmm. You're in a different, in some sense, you're in a different uh, physical space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, I'm I'm remembering. Uh, the movie The Color Purple, where one of the characters walks into church on Sunday morning from the nightclub hmm. and then embraces her father, and then they all sort of march out together. Mm. So, mm-hmm. the, yes, you're right. It would be wonderful to think of how we could embody this at the congregational level. And one of the great things about uh, the new awareness of differently abled what would this look like for a congregation that has a multiplicity of abilities? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, you know, invite the congregation to think about what does this new dance act like for mm-hmm. folks who have visual issues or auditory issues or don't move the same way? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes uh, dancing is, is seen as very able-bodied. Mm. And mm. so you want to you want to complexify it mm. because dancing is a metaphor. It is not meant that everybody needs to be able-bodied in the same way. Yeah, that's right. I love that too, and and I, I love that idea too of, of thinking about this liturgically because I'm just thinking about you know for those who celebrate communion weekly, you could think about it as a dance. You could think about it as that sort of rising up and then moving forward and then you know the spin outward and it's to think about the service as a dance i mean that that's such a neat metaphor and way to kind of bring this outward into the community too yes well one of the um sort of regular features of our podcast is something we call preaching pitfalls and I think we've already addressed a number of them in our conversation, but from either of you, is there anything else that in, in thinking about preaching this particular text that you might want to warn preachers to watch out for to make sure that they don't uh, step in something that they're not intending to step into? I'd invite them to slow down. Mm. Um, one of the temptations of, uh, and one of the ways this text has been trivialized is that you'll get a lot of folks who'll say joy comes in the morning Mm. and they don't want to spend a minute and a half thinking about what preceded the joy. Yeah. Right. So you've got to, you've got to pace it enough that the morning takes enough time that they, they're really there before you get them back into the joy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, A few years ago, I was a consultant on the Prince of Egypt and one of the things that they do in uh, an animated film is they have a color chart of the colors they want to go through the storyline. And the colors connote different feeling levels. Hmm. So it would be wise for the uh, preacher or teacher to think about that color chart. What's the feeling level you want in various elements so that it moves liturgically the way you need it to move Mm. so that you don't too quickly move through one and just land on a place that uh, you can't do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great, great tip. 
Yeah, I really like that. And I really like to um, thinking about this, maybe maybe less as a uh, um, or not less, but in addition to thinking of it as a movement from lament to praise or from trauma to healing, how do you think about it as both of those things walking side by side together? Uh, how do you think about the fact that we go through joy and we go through healing, even when we are still in the midst of pain or of suffering or of trauma? Um, and maybe rhetorically, you can take one of the lines from this uh, psalm and use it as a refrain, because God absolutely saves us and God absolutely gives us joy. Um, but God does not promise us a life free from trouble or free from suffering. That's not the message of this psalm, and that's not the message of the Christian tradition, and we so badly want it to be, <laughs> I think, mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, so so really tending to that, um, that kind of interrelated reality of joy in the midst of suffering, um, as this psalm does, is it kind of flip-flops back and forth between the two could be really helpful to people in your congregation. Oh, that sounds great. And one of the ways to get at that is to just look at a couple hundred years of experience. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, so often in the U.S., we don't pay attention to history as something theological. Mm. But if you, if you look at uh, the women's movement or mm. the civil rights movement, then you can see the the joy and the turmoil and how they go side by side and at this point not yet resolved yeah yeah and and so that that's a that's a great a great strategy of mm. helping folks see the interconnectedness and the long-termness mm. mm -hmm. exactly it's also a place where the the what, how we were speaking before of the I and the we together in this psalm, there, there's a, a communal experience here where uh, because this psalm has both elements of lament and of thanksgiving, of, of pain and of joy, that uh, when congregations are working with this together, those that are in a place of joy can weep with the ones who are mourning and those who are suffering can rejoice with those who have experienced rescue um, because we know that that those scripts are going to get flipped <laughs> in our congregation mm -hmm. and there will be occasion for us to to join others in their experiences at another time yeah, yeah. that's a great observation well this has been just a pleasure we're so grateful that that you were able to be here with us well i had fun glad to do it and grateful that your lady bears one as well Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm excited about the work the two of you are doing and uh, look forward to following your podcast. Oh, great. That's awesome. Thanks again, Steve, for being our guest this month. Thanks, as usual, to Blue Dot Sessions for some music. We also appreciate all of you who listen to the show, and we hope that these conversations give you some resources and a boost of confidence to preach from the first reading. This is when I should remind you to do two things. First, if you haven't already, dial us up on iTunes or in your podcast app and subscribe to the feed. That way you'll have access to new episodes of First Reading as soon as they're available. The, the other super important thing to do right now, or as soon as you get out of the car if you're driving, is to phone a preacher friend or email them or send a carrier pigeon to let them know about the First Reading podcast. I think this would be a great episode to pass along. 
If you're looking for Steve Reed's book or you want to check out past episodes, all that and more is at our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Next month, our expert guest will be the one and only Dr. Mark Zv Brettler. In the meantime, we'll have a few mini-episodes on the first reading each week. Thanks for listening, and happy preaching!